you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. This is episode number 247. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you are listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis NewsHour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Curaleaf being accused of stealing employee tips a cannabis-friendly hotel near the Strip, positive drug tests among U.S. workers hit two-decade high, how the pandemic created a new generation of stoners, a new parent-driven pack wants to know what about the children, a Christian cannabis company, Louisiana considering jail time for minors in possession of cannabis, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got today, Rico? Oh, uh, yeah, Susan. It's good to be back. So my story is coming out of uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, boutique hotel near Strip sold to cannabis-friendly operator. It looks like cannabis hospitality is getting official official on the Las Vegas Strip. Alex, Alex Risk, uh, the owner of Pro Hospitality Group, a cannabis-friendly Phoenix-based chain, purchased the five-story, 64-room artisan hotel for $11.9 million dollars. Pro Hospitality's portfolio can also consists of the Clarendon in Phoenix, which we reported on last year but still haven't taken a field trip to yet, Susan. The Clarendon offers cannabis-friendly rooms and amenities, providing for vaping, dabbing, flower, etc., and a lounge open to hotel guests and the general public. 
They're split use with cannabis and non-smoking rooms and will soon have a dedicated shuttle service taking guests from the hotel to local dispensaries and back. Risk says he hopes to have the same amenities in the Artisan once they're up and running as well. The Las Vegas's Siegel Group acquired the Artisan Hotel uh, through foreclosure back in 2010 and announced the sale to Pro Hospitality via press release last week. Among current amenities listed a popular after-hours scene, as well as a restaurant, wedding chapel, and one of the few topless pools in town. This is a lifestyle boutique hotel, Risk said in the article. He's planning a $3 million renovation, hopes to start the overhaul in the next 60 days to finish by September, and making it a cannabis-friendly, um, pending finalization of laws and regulations in Nevada. Nevada's Clark County officials are on standby in anticipation of cannabis consumption lounge regulations and they will uh, the lounges will be providing locals and tourists places to consume and are set to open this year after state legislator approved them last summer however the state cannabis compliance board has yet to finalize those regulations um, but this would provide the necessary framework and local jurisdictions would have the option to strengthen as they wish it doesn't surprise me at all that the artisan would be converting to an all-out cannabis-friendly hotel, to be completely honest. Um, it's currently one of the few places you can completely buy out in uh, Las Vegas to do what the fuck you want, including cannabis parties. We did exactly that with Baker Technologies uh, during MJ Biz uh, week back in 2018, right before we went public. And uh, I also helped facilitate the Golden Key Party at MJ Biz 2019, which uh, was also held at the Artisan. Uh, besides cannabis parties uh, during Weed Week, the Artisan's known in certain circles as choice location for open lifestyle sex parties. It'll be interesting to indeed to see the Artisan's development play out under Pro Hospitality's ownership, and maybe with Vegas being a couple hours closer than Phoenix, we'll actually be able to make that field trip happen before federal legaliza legalization drops, Susan. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad in the sheets, reporting live for State of Cannabis News Hour. What, do you, what say you? Susan stories. Somebody's, somebody's messing around with the my pillow guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey Rico, so is this one of those hotels that um, offers hourly rates? I don't know if they offer hourly no. rates. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think so. The, the Artisan Hotel. I went to the. I hosted a party at the Artisan Hotel. A one of those pot parties. Uh, it was a. It was a cool, funky place. I mean, it's weird. You know, like yeah. the walls are black and like it's dark and there's black lights and there's like sparkly shit in the ceiling and stuff. But uh, it's kind of a cool place, though. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty hip. Uh, good space. There, we we rented it out, and um, it was us, uh, trees, and headset. We uh, we rented it out back in 2018, and it's pretty dope because like nowhere nowhere else you can actually consume like that. And we're like, fuck it, we're gonna rent out the whole place, and it was not that expensive to do that too. I think that was the same party I was working with trees. Oh shit. <laughs> You guys definitely got the hourly rate for this place, guys. <laughs> well, because he's the dopest dad in the sheets, you know. I mean, how how could we not? Dopest dad in the sheets, bro. Rico, when did they say they were going to be done with the renovation? Uh, hopefully by uh, September. Okay. Yeah. Let's check it out and do something there. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cue the uh, bed squeaks noise, Susan. I see somebody's somebody's messing around with the my pillow guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is so awesome. You're welcome. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> Thank you, Clubhouse. There's a guy on Clubhouse that he's a Trump impersonator, and he has rooms in there. They are hysterical. Anybody else want to 
comment on that? Anybody from Vegas? All right, let's keep moving. Next up is co-producer Jason Beck. His provocative spin keeps the show popping. He has proven to be one of the most resilient players in the weed game since starting his first store in San Francisco. His Midas Touch is going to take the State of Cannabis News Hour to the next level. Hey, Jason, you need to change your profile picture to the one of you judging for the Emerald Cup. Let's do it. What have you got today, Jason? Oh, I might do that a little later today or save something for later in the week because that is a pretty good picture and is a fucking lot of fucking doobies in my ashtray. But nonetheless, today, my story comes out of and is about employment, okay? So just trigger warning, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stats in here for all you number crunchers out there. Where positive drug tests among U.S. workers hit a two-decade high and they spelled it correctly, H-I-G-H. The percentage of working Americans testing positive for drugs hit a two-decade high last year, driven by an increase in positive marijuana tests as businesses might have loosened screening policies amid nationwide labor shortages. One of the more than 6 million general workforce urine tests that, that is called Quest Diagnostics, one of the country's largest drug testing laboratories screened for marijuana last year, 3.9% came back positive, an increase of more than 8% from 2020, according to Quest's annual drug testing index. The figure is up 50% since 2017. Since then, the number of states that legalized cannabis for adult use grew from eight, grew from 18, or grew from eight to 18, plus the District of Columbia. Uh, Barry Sample, it's a fucking great name, Barry Sample, Quest senior science consultant, says the shifting legal backdrop and changing cultural attitudes have prompted some employers to stop testing for cannabis while companies in some states are barred from factoring the test results and do hearing decisions according to Dr. Sample and those trends accelerated last year amid the recent shortage of workers especially in states where adult use cannabis is legal Dr. Sample added we've been seeing a year over year declines in those adult use states but by far the largest drop we've ever seen was in 2021, he said, about the number of drug tests that screened for THC, that is. The percentage of specimens tested for THC declined 6.7% nationwide in 2021 from 2020, while that figure fell by 10.3% in states where adult use cannabis is legal, according to Quest data. We certainly heard from some of our employer customers that they were having difficulty finding qualified workers to pass the drug test, Dr. Sample said, of pre-employment tests for THC, especially in states where the use of the drug was legal. Overall, the proportion of U.S. workers who tested positive for the various uh, drugs Quest screened for in 2021 rose 4.6% to the highest level since 2001, according to Quest, which analyzed nearly 9 million overall urine tests last year on behalf of employers. That percentage is more than 31% higher than the low of 3.5% a decade ago. In uh, early days, of a resurgent heroin epidemic in the U.S. Chris Layden, senior vice president at staffing firm Manpower Group, said the elimination of cannabis screening is one of the most common ways companies are seeking to expand their pool of eligible workers. Manpower's group estimated that drug testing estimates about 5%, eliminates about 5% of candidates. And Michelle Bearden, chief risk and operational officer for Houston-based staffing and recruiting firm Link Staffing Services Incorporated, said she has yet to see a strong reason why Link Staffing should move 
to loosen pre-employment cannabis screening before the federal government does. She acknowledged the job market has been tight during the pandemic, but said she's uh, she doesn't think nixing THC screenings is a good solution. Cannabis is still on the federal list of prohibited substances, and that is what our policies are driven by at this point, she said. If I see that uh, there is an overwhelming reason or cause for us to change ahead of that, we will, she says. Well, more power to you, sister. Get it. And I'll tell you what, you better change because the change is coming. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Jason, I got to agree with you. And like all of these companies, they should have been following the lead of Amazon. Um, when you have the biggest companies in the world saying that they can't even hire nobody because everybody's popping positive on tests, maybe you should be listening to them. Maybe you should follow their lead because you're going to go the, the way of the dodo if you continue to have hiring processes that are screening out people just because they have THC in their system. Yeah, and more importantly, Jason, did the Quest folks talk about that when people stop testing for cannabis, and more importantly, when we finally end the war on drugs, that they'll be out a certain amount of business? Like, isn't it in, in their interest for employees to screen and test because they make money that way? Well, that definitely is 100% right, Guy. That is 100% how they make their money, and you have people doing less tests. That is going to be lesser, lesser uh lesser money, but at the same time too, employers are always gonna drug drug test. So at the same time with this high inflation that we're experiencing in the country, I'm sure it's not gonna be anything for Quest to raise their prices on other tests to subsidize for the loss of cannabis tests. Uh, Jason, I believe it was your favorite president that, that once said wisely, if you test less, you have less positives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, you guys, that, that means we're going to end up paying. The medical system is already a joke. Like, you go to Quest Diagnostics for simple blood tests, and I think, Jason, you're spot on. We end the war on drugs, but we still end up paying because now, in an uninsured state, you go to Quest Diagnostics and pay more for simple blood tests because they're not making their same nut on putting people, you know, getting people lost jobs because they're failing drug tests. 100% Guy. And Guy, I can't wait to hang out and party with you this weekend at the Emerald Cup Judges Ceremony. Oh, yeah. Next level high. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I like the sound of that. But coming to the stage next, she's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common sense cannabis policy, a real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of all of this cannabis chaos. Coming to the stage, Manika Mahajan. What you got for us today? Good morning, Rico. Good morning, team. And good morning, audience. I have some troubling news from Louisiana, reported by Julie O'Donohue of the Louisiana Illuminator. And in Louisiana, a year after state lawmakers decriminalized cannabis and eliminated jail time for possession of 14 grams or less, a new bill proposes to recriminalize possession. And the most troubling element is the target of this bill. Minors. What about the children? Under a new law passed last year, someone convicted of possessing 14 grams or less of cannabis in Louisiana could get a fine of $100 or less, but would not be arrested or thrown in prison. House Bill 700, introduced earlier this month by Republican State Representative Larry Bagley, aims to escalate penalties for minors. Under this bill, adults could still get fines, but the threat of incarceration would be reserved for minors. Here's his reasoning. K-12 schools in his community are unable to keep cannabis off their campuses. He believes the, the DA needs the threat of incarceration in order to force minors into rehab through drug court. He argued that the proposal is not about trying to put people in prison. Unfortunately, the bill reopen, reopens the door to do exactly that, but concentrates those harsher penalties on teenagers and children. 
a person under 18 who is convicted of possessing 14 grams or less of cannabis, the equivalent of 14 to 28 joints, can go to jail for 15 days for the minor's first offense, six months for a second offense, two years for a third offense with or without hard labor, and four years with or without hard labor for a fourth offense. A judge could select probation or another alternative as a punishment, or the judge could punish the minor with imprisonment. As I just mentioned, if you caught that, potentially with hard labor. Representative Nicholas Muscarello, also Republican, has generally been on the side of loosening cannabis restrictions, but believes laws around minors' cannabis use need to be stricter. Quote, we are trying to rehabilitate the children. This allows our courts to, keep, to kind of keep them in check and put them in drug courts, said Muscarello. No judge is putting a kid in jail for six months for marijuana, end quote. Representative Danny McCormick, also a Republican, expressed his reservations about the incarceration piece, but didn't formally object to moving the bill forward. He questioned why being caught with cannabis would earn a worse punishment than being caught with alcohol. In Louisiana, an underage person can get a $100 fine and lose their driver's license for up to six months for alcohol, and there's a $50 fine for minors caught with cigarettes. The House Committee on the Administration of Criminal Justice carved out an exception for minors carrying their own medical cannabis, but then went ahead and advanced this bill to the floor with the other provisions intact. The bill will be debated by the full Louisiana House of Representatives on April 5th. What about the children? I'm Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This is great for Christopher's article, too, about the new parent-driven pack. This, you know, I, I smell Project Sam here. Seriously, what about the children? Come on. Don't put them in jail Lock for them up cannabis. Oh my God! What's worse about? Hold on. Did they say that they're going to put them in? Is they said they're going to put them in hard labor camps. Scholarship. You know, like the the thing that sucks about incarcerating children or even associating small offenses like this with children is when they finally get their act together and they try to go to college, they will be denied all kinds of opportunities because they have a cannabis charge. That's, I think, what's really at happening in Louisiana. It's like, oh, we can't put you in jail permanently. We'll make sure we cap your life. And I do think there's some racial overtones. I'm sure if we ran the numbers, it's disproportionately people of color in Louisiana that are being tagged and fined and having their futures put at risk. You're right, Guy. Um, ACLU, and good morning, everyone. The ACLU uh, actually took a look at Louisiana in 2020, and Louisiana has the highest rate of pretrial incarceration in the country, three times the national rate. And as you suggested, Guy, poor black residents are disproportionately affected. Blacks are twice as likely to be put in uh, their jails as whites. And most of them haven't been convicted. They haven't been convicted. And Sometimes they haven't even been charged with a crime. Sixty percent of those offenses are nonviolent, and most of them are drug possession. So I don't trust this legislation at all. Louisiana loves putting I, black people away in prison. Period. Absolutely, Brandon and Dr. Felicia. I do agree with you. This is Lakeisha. I'm here in Louisiana, and um, currently in our legislative session, we have 24 bills pertaining to cannabis. This session, and they're they're dealing with resentencing, expungement. Um, getting more dispensaries, um, getting more licensing um, issued. And one of them, as far as like getting nurse practitioners to actually be able to recommend medical marijuana. But this bill here is, is terrible because we're going backwards. When we decriminalized in New Orleans, 
you know, we made a major step. We're taking it from that criminal aspect where it's not going to be on their record, and we're making it a civil offense similar to a traffic um, offense, and you just go ahead, pay your fine or what have you. The first time is actually like a written warning. So if we're doing this to minors, we're starting them off in the criminal justice system. We are going backwards on this. And, and it's frustrating, especially since we have such a limited, if you want to call it, market down here in Louisiana. Menica, did you say that the kids are going to be doing hard labor? So in the bill itself, it for the third and fourth convictions, it explicitly says that they could be sentenced to imprisonment with or without hard labor for not more than two years or four years. So the law actually includes a hard labor option for children. Yeah, yeah that's a super gross overreach. And that's the standard in Louisiana language when it comes to penalties, that hard labor um, verbiage. So it's, it's But for ridiculous. children, I mean, we as the United States, you know, we participate in various international treaties and conventions that are... Um, you know, in opposition to forced labor, child labor, all of these things. So, so there's a big disconnect there. This reads well, like prison lobbyist pork. Who is behind this bill? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they are in the pocket of prison lobbyists if they are promoting something like this. Well, you know, one one other thing to 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 this to this whole point, and really to kind of streamline on what on what he was saying. Uh, Congressman Moorbacher was a really close uh, friend of mine and shared with me a story of a time before he ever was involved in any type of any government whatsoever, where he almost got caught with some weed. And he, and he was just saying how, what does America look like if I would have got caught with weed and wasn't able to do a lot of the things that I was able to do as a federally elected official? And so I and, and this this happens to to lives across the country during this during this drug war where we don't know the true potential of what America can be or could be um, when, when we incarcerate people at this early age and don't offer them a way of, of rehabilitation and re uh, coming back into the system without harsh penalties or anything like that. That's exactly it, Jason. I mean, we're starting these kids off at a deficit and there are many people here in this market, more than two thirds of the votership want to see mar marijuana legalized recreationally as well. And we're starting these kids off where they can't even get into the industry and, and you know, participate. So this is a bogus bill. It's ridiculous. And we're criminalizing our children. A hundred percent. And how many people are going to lose out on scholarships uh, because of this? And these people could be the next educators, the next um, next engineers, the next designers of the next greatest thing. And because of what happened early on in life, those events will never be invented or created or take place in this That's world. right. Can't get passful if you have a criminal charge, especially for controlled substance. We're so grateful that you were able to come up on the stage, Lakeisha. Akimo, did you want to weigh in before we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I think people, uh, most people don't realize how different the uh, judicial system and the incarceration system is in Louisiana with uh, historical prisons like Angola which is, I mean, that is hard labor. Like people are farming carrots and shit in the sun for fucking eight to 10 hours every day on a chain gang. And that doesn't happen most places in the country, as well as being in some part of the legal system in some, some parishes that you're, that you're guilty till proven innocent. Uh, literally, that's how the judicial system works in some parts of Louisiana. The new Jim Crow all over again. There needs to be a referendum on this dude, Larry Bagley. Like he just needs to be out. 
What's funny is on his site um, for vision and goals, he says, I will be a strong champion of individual freedoms and will protect the rights of gun owners and hunters, <laughs> but not uh, not cannabis users, apparently. But not, no. chil- not children. Not children. Put them in hard labor camps. What cannabis users are, are gun users. The- yep. You want to go hunt black bodies. That's what he wants to do. Oof. This is the this the concept of putting children in jail is the cruelest thing I I can even imagine in 21st century America. It's just incomprehensible. We're way over time on this headline. Um, Brandon, right. Brandon, Brandon, wait, Brandon, do you want to finish your your thought and then Ted and then we need to move on? I mean, I would say you know we have a dedicated team on the News Hour. We have you know we love our listeners. Let's all boycott any business that supports this guy Bagley. Like, why? They should not be supporting somebody that wants to put kids in prison because they possessed or consumed cannabis and then force them into hard labor if they do it a couple times. Please, this guy needs to disappear from the face of the planet. Hey, I'll follow up real quick, quickly on this. Um, go to Gary Chambers. We've already done the story. He's running for Senate in Louisiana. Drop them five dollars, okay, or whatever you can give, because we need somebody like him in there, because he's pro cannabis and he's going to help fix this situation. Thank you. Bye. And I, I definitely am with all you guys. I think Unicor Brandon has their fingerprints all over this bill. But enough of that. Coming up next, we have Gretchen Gailey, this feisty redhead conservative, proudly claims her Mayflower roots and never backs down when challenged by pot-loving libs across the aisle, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us, girl? Good afternoon, Jason. Uh, my headline today is coming from the Green Market Report. Um, and the headline is female-owned Etain sells to Riv Capital for $247 million. Etain, the New York cannabis market's only women-owned and operated business and one of the state's original five cannabis license holders, has been sold to Riv Capital for $247 million. Riv Capital will acquire ownership and control of the Etain companies once it gets regulatory approvals from the New York Cannabis Control Board and the New York uh, State Office of Cannabis Management. At one point in New York, there was a restriction that a minority-owned cannabis company could only sell to another minority-owned company, so it remains to be seen if they will enforce this. Uh, Riv Capital is actually funded by Scott's miracle Grow, so essentially Scott's um, has now bought a cannabis company. Uh, Riv is paying $212 million in cash and $35 million in stock. Etain COO Hillary Peckham said, This agreement marks the most significant transaction for a woman-owned business in cannabis history. While the Peckham family will be stepping back from control of the company, we will be actively partnered with Riv Capital on preserving the ethos of the Etain brand and utilizing our combined efforts to continually find and make new spaces for women in cannabis. Riv Capital clearly recognized the potential for women-led brands to flourish in the cannabis industry, and we are proud that our work at Etain has led us to this point in time. Etain is one of only 10 approved vertically integrated operators in the state of New York. It was also the only New York operator with a female CEO, and that has ended too. Uh, I'm very kind of torn on this headline. While I I know the folks at Etain, and I'm thrilled for them that they were able to sell at this price because I know they were looking, I'm also sad to see that women-owned business is now gone and there are no more women-owned operators there in New York. So happy for uh, the the women at E-Team, but not so thrilled for what it's doing for diversity in the industry up there. 
the Scratch and Prostate Canvas News Hour. I'll jump in. I actually, like, Etain was my dispensary of choice in Manhattan because you don't get that many choices. Well, because I, I take pills as a, as a patient. And they have this stuff that says, like, buy weed from women. And so now it's, like, buy weed from women until they can sell for $247 million. It's just, like, it's sad. Um, so I agree with you, Gretchen. Like, mixed feelings about it and interested to see what happens with it. And also worth noting, like, when they did get the license, people were very, like, is a white woman-owned business really the diversity that New York was looking for? But that is, uh, I guess, no longer a debate to be had. But thanks for bringing it. I mean, I'm surprised that you guys aren't supporting her. I mean, she just created a business and sold it and cashed out. And that's, that, that's the, the goal of, of entrepreneurship. Well, no, I'm, I'm I don't very think... happy and proud for the women, but I just, you know, I, I hate to see there no longer being a woman-owned business in this state, in the entire so would you, state. So, so, so would you say would you say that uh, she should have only sold to a woman-owned company? No, I wouldn't say that, but I would like to maybe see them. We'll see how much of an active role they take in uh, still being a part, but it looks like they're stepping back and Scott's is really going to take it over completely. Do you Go know ahead. they tried to find a woman buyer? I know they, I do not know. I know that they have been working for quite a long time to find a buyer that they were comfortable with that would uh, hold on to their, their brand and to the mission that they put forward. Um, Etain has always been very about the patient. Um, and making sure the highest quality products. And they didn't want to just sell to the first guy who came along. That's why they held out for so long um, and were the last one there. People thought they might go all the way through the actual regulatory process and legalization before they came to a buyer. Uh, so I was a little surprised to see that it had happened, but we'll see. I will agree. I, I will agree it's good products. Like, there's a reason I, I spent my money there. So I guess maybe I'm just a little bitter because I'm like, I, I hope it, I hope it re remains the quality it is. Gretchen, did, is this the little the little blonde girl whose father was a construction development builder who originally got this license? Girl, I would say girl? it was the strong, wonderful, uh, strawberry blonde woman uh, and her mother and sister. Yes, who operated this business. Yes, that's did he yes, I remember. Little, did he say little blonde girl out loud? Yeah, she, she's that? a little blonde girl. Yeah, she's a little blonde girl. Thank I remember. You, oh, Jason, I remember her, Jason, I Jason, her, you need to, uh, you, dude, you need to. I'm pretty sure medical. you need to back down on that one, dude. No, no, it's okay. I, it's only for you. I remember this. She was, uh, it's going to be okay, Chris. Okay. So well, this, this girl, not for I remember me. Thanks. The you. whole vice episode. I remember the whole vice episode when she was talking about the company that she wanted to build and, and, and showing all of the development, uh, that, that, that they were going to be bringing to the state of New York. And I was just like, wow, these people got big, big bread. I'm going to go ahead and relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. You're such a strong woman, <laughs> Susan. All right. So up next, he's repping Long Beach, California heavy. And he's also the CEO of Fruits Labs, cannabis and intellectual property attorney. And no amount of any kind of springtime rain or any kind of sickness can ever bust through that strong, vibrant beard that he's got on his face. Brandon Dorsky, what you got for us today, my man? Uh, today I got a hot take about... Cureleaf employees suing the company over 
Stolen Earned Tips, as reported by Bloomberg Law, as well as Law 360. An ex-Cure Leaf dispensary employee filed a class action lawsuit against the MSO, claiming the tips earned by her and other employees were not distributed to the staff and were illegally taken by managers. The egregious behavior took place in Northbrook, Illinois, where Morgan Heller claims her claims that Cureleaf violated the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Illinois Wage Payment and Collection Act. Heller's suit is a class action on behalf of herself and current and former hourly employees who worked for Cureleaf. Heller worked at the Northbrook Dispensary for just over a year, from September 2020 to October 2021, where she worked 32 to 40 hours per week and earned $16 an hour. She alleges dispensary store managers told her she could not accept tips from customers despite it being a relatively common practice within the cannabis industry. She claims employees that continued to accept tips after the directive ended up in disputes with management, but roughly a month later, Heller was told she could not, roughly a month after Heller was told she couldn't accept the tips, Cureleaf changed their policy and began allowing tips to be accepted, and a tip jar was placed at the front of the store that she worked in. She alleges there was an understanding that hourly employees would divide the tips equally amongst themselves for the shift and include front of house and backroom hourly staff. However, according to the complaint, Heller was never permitted to keep any cash, tips she received from customers, and no tips were ever distributed by management to her or any other hourly employees. The complaint claims roughly $350 to $600 in tips were confiscated on a daily basis by management, and over the course of the year, more than $125,000 of cash tips were not distributed at this particular dispensary location. The complaint claims on information and belief that the practice of confiscating tips was not limited to the Northbrook dispensary and that employees in other Cureleaf locations were victimized by their store managers, too. The complaint even alleges, quote, the Cureleaf managers had so much confiscated tip money, they regularly purchased excessive and wasteful amounts of food that was not even eaten simply to reduce the amount of confiscated cash tips stored on the premises. The rub that Cureleaf likely cannot escape is that the Fair Labor Standards Act states, quote, an employer may not keep tips received by its employees for any purposes, including allowing managers or supervisors to keep any portion of employees' tips, regardless of whether or not the employer takes a tip credit. In January, Cureleaf allegedly stopped confiscating tips and began distributing them to employees. But the practice had endured for over a year and at one point even included managers handing out cash to employees as, quote, lunch money from the confiscated tips. Heller is seeking damages that include back pay, unpaid tips, prejudgment interest, attorney's fees, and declaratory and injunctive relief. I hope she's successful. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. This seems like a PR nightmare for Cureleaf. I mean, if the customers knew that their tips, they're tipping $300 to $600 a day, and they're not going to the people that they're intending them to go to, wow. I mean, this par of the course for MSO game, huh? I did a similar, the rich get richer. I did a similar story on this about a year ago, and guess who? Med Men. Such a bad look, such a bad look. So, Christopher, would you say that uh, Cure Leaf might be going the way of the Med Men? I have, I have no idea, but uh, the attitude is egregious, and the treatment of, of people that you look in the eye and look in the face every single day and say, I'm stealing your money, so deal with it, that just the... the, the 
boldness and the brashness and the awfulness of that behavior is just so radical to me. If you're shopping at an MSO like Curaleaf or MedMen and you're overpaying for Boof and you're going to tip on top of it, just go to a mom-and-pop dispensary that has better cannabis that's run by somebody like Jason Beck. Just Don't always do. Yeah, there we go. There we go. There we go. The Wizard of Oz. You don't always have that choice, depending on where you are. Just uh, say. Great point. Like New York City. That's yeah, true. Like Etain was like the. It was MedMen, Columbia Care. Like that's Manhattan Dispensary. You just gotta go to uh, Astor Club. There are. Go to Astor Club. There are plenty of I'm people in New York and groups of people in New York that have better cannabis. If you're in the cannabis industry, you know who these parties are: Astor Club, Happy Monkey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah, you well, do not need to go to an MSO to get good cannabis in New York. I feel like I'm getting yelled at. All I was trying to say is that if you want to, if you do want to buy, in the, if you want to support people that are trying to be legal, sometimes you don't have the choice to go to a mom and pop sh shop like Jason Beck. It's true. Well, that's another reason why you should go to 45th and Broadway to my food truck. That's actually a weed truck. <laughs> Allegedly. I have to just comment on that. I, I appreciate the legal market, but we have to toe the line. And just because MSOs are legal doesn't mean we should shop there. The traditional market still lives and... Buy weed from people who care about you, your friends, and good weed, not just because they're legal. That, whatever, we're still not really legal, still federally prohibited. We're all in the same game. Buy good weed from people that you trust, know, and that share your values. 100%, Guy, I'm with you all the way on that. I think we need to start a whole new campaign with bags everywhere that says just buy good weed. Vote with your dollars, people, and vote with your dollars. I do think, though, like, not all consumers, like, know the people. You know what I mean? Like, that's why it matters. That's why it matters. Like, if someone wants to Google dispensaries and go to a legal dispensary and they don't, they're not connected. Like, I don't know. I do agree. People should vote with their dollars. I agree with that. I just think, like, in this space, a lot of us have those people. We know those people. But the average consumer does not. And then we get to the issue of the states that allow cities or municipalities to opt out. So there's nothing in certain cities. California, New York, same. This is this is why proof in point why the trap will never die, <laughs> or exactly why we need to deschedule cannabis and open up interstate trade, and that way we can order weed from Amazon and have it delivered to our homes, no matter where the fuck we live. I can order from Jason oh Beck, get it delivered. Dude, how, how dope would yes. it be if you can go on Amazon and you can buy the dopest, dankest weed yes. on Earth? Yes, direct to consumer, <laughs> baby. Yeah, well, that day is coming. That day is coming real quick. Exactly. That's a better licensing structure where MSOs don't work regulators over so that they have privileged licenses so that they're the only people you can Google. A free market, free trade like every other industry, that's what we deserve. Yes, indeed. And coming up next, that's been a great topic on that. And coming up next, we have Christopher Smith. He's a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report, Citizens from His Home Planet. Call him Khalil. While flying high on Earth, he's known to the public as a Superman. But while we all know his secret identity is Christopher. What kind of news you got for us today, dog? I got something hot today, Jason. Thank you, and good morning, Susan Arico. My story today comes from the Washington Examiner. Before we get into the meat of the article, I'd like to discuss the source. We talk a lot about propaganda in this room how, and how deleterious propaganda is to clear and fair discourse about the challenges we face in our industry. Propaganda is the opposite of news, the opposite of truth. It's manufactured to tug at our emotions, to invent concerns for tribes to rally around, to rhyme, or to use clever language to make it more memorable. Remember the main weapons of mass destruction, make America great again, propaganda 101, all of it bullshit. In 1937, the Hearst 
Anzinger axis of evil created the coded lyrical structure for anti-cannabis propaganda that protected Anzinger's job, covered up for the great hemp hustle, one of the greatest industrial uh, sabotage industries uh, in history. Uh, the code worked so well that in 1961, every member of the United Nations agreed that marijuana is one of the most dangerous drugs in the world. So those magic words that have endured so long, incurably insane, uncontrollably violent, insatiably sexual, and also what rallied the tribe that marijuana is a gateway drug. When all good Christians know the time at the time very well that only gateway is the gateway to hell, which is a perfect segue to the source of today's article, the Washington Examiner, which is designed to look like a patriotic news source with an eagle and the whole nine. That's the first clue. And the next clue is right on the top line is one of the navigation items, Restoring America. Wait, is that coded lyrical stand-in for Make America Great Again? Step right up to the gateway to hell. And so it's no surprise that we find this article there, New Parent-Driven political action committee will oppose drug legalization in Congress and states. Quote, a new political action committee led by parents to counter the legalization of drugs, particularly marijuana, will launch in Colorado Tuesday. The pack is called Protect Our Kids, which I guess makes it a pock pack, is made up of parents adamantly opposed to recent policies at state and federal levels to decriminalize drugs such as marijuana and psychedelics. It's the brainchild of, you guessed it, Luke Neforitos, the executive vice president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Him and Kevin Sabet are running us right to hell. Last quote is, the POC PAC will support candidates regardless of party who pledge to vote against measures that would legalize marijuana and other drugs. So let's be clear. The POC PAC is a crock, Jack. What they're really doing is to pay politicians to vote against laws the majority of Americans already support, from 70 to 90 percent, depending on which poll you read. They're Paying politicians to vote against laws the majority of states have already approved. 38 out of 50. So much for states' rights, you morons. They're paying politicians to vote against laws that would allow research into the myriad levels of medicinal magic of God's favorite plant, actually restoring America as a shining city of innovation, healthcare, science, and industry. They're paying politicians to vote against laws that protect American patients from harassment and arrest for further suffering. That's children military veterans. They're paying politicians to vote against laws that protect American businesses that employ 400-something thousand Americans today and deliver billions of dollars in taxes. You want to protect our kids? This is not the way to do it. And I'm out of gas. Don't crash on any little blonde girls, Christopher. Superman doesn't need gas to stay in the high, stay high in the sky. Great story, Christopher. Well, I would say that this is an excellent example of why this industry needs to be engaged and needs to put money where their mouths are and actually get involved in the political game. Because if you don't, other people will. Yeah, that's... 100%, Gretchen. Yeah, Big Farm is known to great, fund great. that particular group, actually. It's a great point. And great uh, point. <laughs> we in America have the highest health care costs and the worst health outcomes, and cannabis could really turn all of that around. Yes, indeed. Well, we're Guy, did you have a comment really quickly? I uh, know, no, I think I think we're good. Thank you, though. Okay, let's keep moving. All right, our next correspondent is working hard to expand safe access, protect religious freedom, and promote social justice in cannabis, psychedelics, and tax laws. And you know she stays lit, man. Victoria Littman, what you got for us today? Thanks for that, Rico. Uh, I'm excited today because my article comes from the Religion News Source. 
a uh, new service, excuse me. The headline is, with Christian cannabis, a pastor is promoting the spiritual side of marijuana. Craig Gross believes he can convince Christians to give getting high a try. The article describes Gross's experience with medical cannabis and the way it changed his life medically and spiritually. This transformative experience shifted his career from being an anti-porn activist on the church circuit to deciding to develop a cannabis brand specifically marketed to Christians. His new company, Christian Cannabis, aims to not just sell marijuana to Christians, but to encourage them to use it to deepen their relationship with God, which as a religious person with a graduate degree in theology, I think is a beautiful and real and sincere way to think about cannabis use. It has a place in your practice of prayer and worship, and that can help you connect to God in a deep and profound way, says the company's website, which has a spiritual tab on its homepage to go with a recreational and medical tab. And I swear to God that I wrote a paper a few years ago where I talked about what I think will be a huge question with tax implications. How do we define and classify spiritual versus recreational versus medical use? I know a lot of people think religions just try and avoid paying taxes. And you know, I love to talk about taxes, but I think it's important to have an open mind that this is about more than that. There is no doubt that cannabis and psychedelics have a long history in religious and spiritual contexts globally. And the article goes into more detail and gives examples. So I'll leave that all for you to dig into at your leisure. The article also describes newer American religious communities that arose in the 60s and since, which utilize cannabis as a sacrament. Rather than forming a religious group based on cannabis, Gross sees himself as bringing cannabis to mainstream Christians, aiming to help them explore their spirituality by smoking before prayer or simply allowing themselves to use it recreationally without shame. It takes you down a path that looks spiritual, but it looks different than your mom's church, Gross says. We have to just be open, I think, to presenting the gospel, presenting the spirit in different ways. For me, the logical next step of opening this door is that more established religious communities will want to utilize the sacrament of cannabis similarly to alcohol, using it both ritually and socially. It sounds like Gross is thinking similarly. He's currently working to attract investors and aims to have products on shelves in dispensaries in California later this year before expanding. His focus is on low THC products because he doesn't want to scare off first-time users, and his proposed products include cannabis communion wafers and a holy water tincture and cannabis incense sticks. No faith group is uniform in its beliefs about literally anything. And we see people in support and against cannabis in all religions, usually based on propaganda and misinformation. As more people gain access in legal markets and stigma decreases, more and more people are shifting their views. We should take it as a good sign that someone who was preaching anti-porn is now pro-cannabis. These are people that we need to be reaching, and it's helping. The article notes that religious people have had impact in advocating for positive changes in marijuana law all across the Bible Belt South and in Utah. The article concludes by citing a religion professor who I disagree with. She thinks that the only role marijuana has in religion is for people who want to get away from dogma and rituals as part of mystical traditions. I think you will see and you can, will continue to see that people will want to work to integrate cannabis and psychedelics as sacraments in all shades of religious practice. The potential legal problems that could arise from this range from problems with regulating and taxing religion to having to figure out what or what isn't a religion. The DEA and Oregon advocates are already pushing these limits in the area of psychedelics. It's also worth adding that especially under a federal legal framework of cannabis, it's really hard to see how the First Amendment wouldn't provide a lot of protection for religious use, which could include cultivation. But whether we're talking cannabis or psychedelics, I maintain that religious communities have the potential to be effective containers for positive experiences with drugs. Religions and drugs have a lot in common and that they both have the power to shape how we think and they have the potential to be consciousness expanding. Context, community, connection, this is what religion at its best can offer. And approaching cannabis use and community to connect to something that is bigger than us or even just each other is part of the power that we all have to build a better reality. So thank you for letting me talk about a core passion of mine. You're going to keep hearing about this. I'm Victoria Lippman.
Data Cannabis News Hour. Thanks for having me. I love, love, love this story, Victoria. And anybody who hasn't already, or if you're like me, don't even read, listen to the Audible version of the Immortality Key. You can find the true roots of religion, the Eucharist, all that shit. It all started with weed, ergot, and psychedelics. Straight up shrooms. I just feel like his I feel like his marketing is way off on this one with the low dose THC. I think he should be doing high dose THC and telling everybody that if they try his products, they can see God personally. Well, Jason, <laughs> I'm gonna be creating those products. I'm partnered with Craig and look, I'm not a religious person, but I think to Victoria's point, what Greg should what, what Craig <clears throat> shared, these are people who look to their pastors and are basically held back by these gatekeepers. And if we can create a brand that gives them permission to use cannabis in their lives, that's providing safe access, which has always been my personal mission. But I can tell you right now that I'm gonna make sure this Christian cannabis brand has all the values that we love, solventless, clean cannabis, forward thinking, we won't be stealing employees' tips, and I'm definitely gonna make sure that the Christian is in Christian cannabis, even though, again, I'm not a religious person. And to Rico's point, it's true. God's law has been about cannabis from day one, if you really do your history. These interpretations right now are somebody else's. And when we think about the political nature of religion and how cannabis is still morally frowned upon, this is our opportunity to change that and start to change the moral paradigm. Something that's illegal is not immoral. And I think that working with Christian cannabis will be able to break that stigma. Just to mirror what you said, I think that the law is immoral. The law against cannabis is immoral, Guy, and maybe that's even another way to look at it. Victoria, I love the way that you handled this story. I really appreciate it. This is a really good job. And, and, and anyone that doesn't know or isn't familiar with the Bible, you know, in the Genesis, it says that all seed-bearing plants are of this earth and to be used, not to mention uh, there's a number of uh, theologians that believe that, uh, that Moses had the burning bush and that was weed, and not to mention the Cushites, which I'm a proud Cushite myself. Hey, the burning bush was actually DMT. Uh, I don't know if it was DMT, bro. They might have been it was. DMT. No, it was Immortality Key. Read that shit or listen to it. It's actually proven it was DMT. All right. All right. Well, coming up next, we have Shalina Panu. She's an attorney at law, at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. She's also a co-owner of one of the Flyest IG pages on the team and the other owner, being Mark Zuckerberg. Coming next to the stage is the founder of Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Toke, Shalina Panu. What you got for us today, girl? <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Cannabis Companies Are Capitalizing on 420. According to MJ Biz Daily, now that COVID restrictions are easing, people are eager to celebrate 420 with others in public settings. What this also means is, is that cannabis sales will naturally begin to rise even higher. It's estimated that cannabis businesses see an increase of about 30 to 50% on not only 420, but also the days leading up to that day. As stated by Headset, which is a Seattle-based data analytics firm that tracks data across the adult use markets, 420 sales are usually double than sales from the previous four weeks. Further, Akerna, which is a Colorado-based can uh, cannabis technology company, stated that 420 sales from 2021 estimated to nearly $111.8 million. Most cannabis companies are recognizing that people purchase cannabis days before 
uh, 420 and not just on 420 itself. This is why many cannabis companies are scheduling their promotions and discounts to start on the Friday before 420 on April 15th, since 420 lands on a Wednesday. Denver-based cannabis company called Native Roots prepares six months in advance for 420. They properly stock their stores by April 1st as people start to pour in, but they also make sure not to provide flower products too far in advance to prevent selling flour that is not fresh. What Native Roots also noticed regarding their sales is that flour still takes the lead over other products. On the contrary, however, Florida-based MSO Jushi Holdings states that although 420 is a smoker's event, new consumers are intimidated by flour and will likely lean towards products that are easier to use, such as edibles. Companies like Shwayze, which is based in Denver, say, say that they run their deals and specials until the end of April. It makes sense because people usually stockpile on 420, thus not returning to the store for a while. However, with providing deals to the end of the month, it allows for consumers to come back even sooner. Another way to ease consumer experience is by providing digital access. Jushi Holdings, for example, allows consumers to go on their website, fill their carts with their orders, and then pick up their products at the store. They revamped their website during the pandemic to increase efficiency, which in turn improved their conversion rates, among the making their entire sales process easier. A Chicago-based MSO called Pharmacan is preparing to throw a party to celebrate cannabis on 420 in the same way Oktoberfest is celebrated around beer. The company has seen roughly a 50% 50% increase in flower sales and other flower products. They believe that this year's 420 will be the biggest celebration the cannabis industry has seen thus far. 420 is a day to celebrate what this industry has done so far. Plus, it's an incredible way to bring in new consumers. What are your thoughts on 420 this year? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I thought it was interesting that uh, pre-rolls are, are going up and flowers going a little bit down. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, when they first came up with pre-rolls, it seemed like they were just taking really shitty weed and sticking it into pre-rolls because you couldn't see it. But it, it, I, I think, maybe this is just my opinion, but I think that pre-rolls are getting better and better. And who doesn't want their their flower rolled up for them? I, and not everybody is a Jason Beck. I was watching Jason Beck roll up a bunch of joints the other day, and he's really great at rolling joints. But it, it's it's a chore for me. I think I think it's they a had chore no for cho- me too. I think they had no choice but to get better uh, with the prices that they were. Uh, the margins are that much better. Like if if you are a flower company, you're not, you're not selling pre rolls, and you're missing out on a, a ton of revenue because people do not like to roll their own joints. Well, I said at the beginning of legalization that uh, there was going to be no more grams, and that pre rolls were going to take that skew category over. Yeah, and and I think that's still possible, but we have to. I hope we keep flowers and don't let it get too much like the cigarette model. You know, we don't see a lot of loose tobacco unless we search for it. Being able to get whole flower and roll your own should be an option, but the consumer is inherently lazy, and people do want that convenience. And as a manufacturer, value-added products allow us to upcharge and make the commodity price a little bit more stable. So, yeah, I do think pre-rolls and canagars will be the future in general. I- I like I like your point, Guy. Uh, it's like, do you want your coffee pre-ground? No, I don't. But wouldn't it be great if the store? And I understand in California how this can't happen. But if in the store you could have, if there was a machine that you could buy your flowers and you could even mix them and grind it, grind them up, and and have a pack of pre-rolls that you personally made. 
and walk out the door. I think that'd be great. All you have to do, Susan, is go to Starbucks and buy a yeah, yeah. coffee grinder. They're like 30 bucks, and then you have the same thing, and you can do that shit but at then home. you have to roll it. It's the rolling part. You I have mean, to roll it anyway, and it's going to yeah. be a rolling lot easier to roll it at your house than rolling it in, in, uh, while you're it, standing inside of a dispenser. No, a machine that rolls it for you, like... Um, no, Futurola. no, like the banana bros. A Futurola machine, yeah. Like a little banana bros thing. A little but baby. Also, yeah, give the banana bros. Yeah, but before we move to, to, to our last story there, um, speaking of Starbucks, like how much are motherfuckers paying for a cup of coffee at Starbucks? Over premium over what it actually costs to make that yourself. Yeah. Let's, money, let's give money, Jana money. the last comment and then we need to move to Guy's story because we've only got three minutes. Hey, fine folks. Thanks. I just wanted to jump in on that note, Susan. Uh, at our shops in Oregon, we did offer a little um, service where you could have somebody grind and roll you some joints or pre-order them or buy your flour uh, by the 8th and come back later that evening or set it up for Friday night. You want a whole, you know, 8th rolled up for yourself for your party weekend. And it was a hit. But a machine, brilliant, ma'am. There Thank you go. Love it. You're not so, going to get a machine. So, so bringing us home, this, he's an OG, veteran, dope dad, and he's respected as a steadfast defender of the culture. Co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley, bringing us home is Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, my man? Uh, thanks, Rico, Jason, Susan. Good morning, team. Uh, my article is coming out of The Guardian, How the Pandemic Created a New Generation of Stoners. So I'll be quick. Essentially, the article highlights a few folks. One is Richard Capuano, who dabbled in high school, sounds familiar, but his weapons of choice have been beer and mezcal until, of course, the pandemic, when he realized he probably can't just sit there drinking all day. Another uh, person in the article, Evans, uh, Richard Evans, I think, or uh, I forget what his name is, but he was basically saying, like, uh, you know, I was drinking three or four IPAs and passing out watching Superstore, and that wasn't working for me. So what this article highlights is the increase in cannabis sales, not only due to safe access, but because people were home in the pandemic, realizing that, like Mr. Caputo, stress and anxiety can only be mitigated by something like cannabis, not necessarily alcohol. Uh, the other gentleman went on to talk about how he drinks a lot less. Bottom line, to wrap this up, you guys, I definitely suggest you guys read the article because it's awesome because there are there is data showing how an increasing number of abs- Increasing number of people are abstaining from alcohol because they're starting to feel the effects, especially those who are older than 30, and they are starting to replace that with cannabis. The pandemic definitely fueled that kind of behavior. Uh, one of the gentlemen in the article is quoted as, has, they didn't see their family or their parents, but they saw their dealer. Cannabis, as you guys know, during the pandemic was uh, deemed an essential business, and I think this is that silver lining that we all need to latch onto. Cannabis is great for our new modern environment because it mitigates stress and breathes life into us. Other drugs, alcohol, tobacco don't do that. The place of cannabis, most of us have already known, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but this article starts to show that average Americans, because of the behavior change in the pandemic, are now realizing the joys of cannabis. At the final end, uh, Mr. Caputo realizes that now he's going back and he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke every day like he used to, but he says, quote, I still smoke, but I now reserve it for special occasion. And what's a special occasion? Well, that's open for interpretation. And I think that's a fine way 
for him to leave it off. And that's how I'll leave us off this morning. I'm Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Perfect timing. Thank you, Guy. I came out of the green closet uh, during the pandemic on nextdoor.com and offered free pot brownies to all of my neighbors, which they readily took me up on. And at least half of them had never tried cannabis before. So that is a true story. Anyway, we've- That's a great use for outdoor, Susan. Oh, Jason, shut up. Uh, Seriously, no, it is. Well, true. Yes. Thank you. Um, That was a really great show, you guys. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and Jaja Simone Brown for being our pinup girl. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city county state or country your addition to our show makes the state of cannabis news hour news you can trust you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye. Bye, bye, bye.